Father, we are grateful for that consideration that there is a home to go to, that our lives are brief, and we thank you for the promises that are in your word that assure us of a presence with you in eternity through the forgiveness of sin and our trust and union with Jesus Christ. For those who know not Jesus, we pray in their behalf here together as we stand before the word and the table. And we pray, Father, that you would move in hearts drawing to the light of the saving gospel of Christ those who do not know you. Feed us as we do know you and deepen us in this word. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Growing up as I did on the East Coast, one of my family's day trips was devoted to climbing Mount Washington in New Hampshire. We climbed it in a car. That was harrowing enough. Mount Washington is more than twice the highest peak in Minnesota, which I realize is not saying a lot at all. But it's tall enough that the summit is mostly bare rock and a few twisted short trees. The clouds can cover the summit on some days, so it's, it's up there. And it rises, it seems, right out of the earth. It just pokes up straight, a very pointy mountain, and so it's pretty significant. But the road up the mountain is very narrow, and on the passenger's side there is nothing but the sheer face of the mountain. One moment of inattention, and a car could launch off into thin air and fall a long, long ways. My mom occupied the passenger's seat, which provided stunning views overlooking the cliff edge. She did not enjoy the views. Her repeated gasps, frightened twitches, exclamatory expressions of terror were so repetitive that my father got the giggling about it. He couldn't stop laughing, and that didn't help my mom at all. But despite his amusement, his hands were both on the wheel. His eyes were fixed on that road, because one little mistake, and it was goodbye. He was wide awake. Imagine someone in that same situation driving up that same road and you notice that the driver is starting to nod off to sleep, like some of you are already maybe, but (laughs) start getting sluggish. You're going to say, hey, uh, wake up there, pay attention, this is not a place to get sluggish, kind of falling asleep and one arm on the wheel and nodding off, that is not going to work. Well, like the drive up Mount Washington, the Christian life is not conducive to sluggish apathy. Follower of Christ, you must stay awake. We must remain vigilant in our journey to glory, growing sluggish and failing to pay close attention to the attacks of Satan, the inroads of worldly philosophy, the temptations of the flesh. It's life-threatening. Such spiritual inattention can lead to a launch over the cliff edge into apostasy. Apostasy. 
That's when a person makes a credible profession of faith in Jesus Christ, but later falls away, abandons his or her profession, and renounces Christ as Lord and Savior. Yeah, I used to believe in Him, not anymore. Apostasy. It's a real and present danger for the followers of Christ. It demands keen vigilance, lest the car of faith leave the way of life and we catapult to destruction. We come today to one of the most extended biblical warnings against apostasy in the New Testament here in Hebrews at the end of chapter 5. And the author begins with this challenge. Spiritually sluggish believers must wake up and pursue maturity by growing deeper in God's Word. This is the theme of 5.11-6.3. through 6, 3. Let's read it together, get an overview of it, then we'll go back to it and look at it in more t- detail. Verse 11 of chapter 5. About this we have much to say and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God of instructions about washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Back up to 5.11. Let's work our way through it. (coughs) First of all, notice that word dull in verse 11. The word dull in verse 11, connect to the word sluggish in verse 12 of chapter 6. That's the same Greek word. So we're not helped here by this translation, by translating it two different ways. There's a connection here between the two, and the section holds together around this theme. So dull in 5.11 and sluggish in 6.12, the same Greek word. Verse 11, about this... We have much to explain. It is a reference to the high priestly work of the Lord Jesus Christ in the line of Melchizedek, or after the, in the train, we might say, of Melchizedek. The author will return to that topic in 6.13, you'll notice, but before he does, he blasts a warning siren at his hearers. He feels conflicted. He's anxious to go on teaching about Christ, the Melchizedekian priest, but he's not convinced he'll get very far. I think actually, though it comes across as a concern with all of them, I think it's a concern with some of them. But he's not sure if he's going to get very far because as verse 11 continues, he says, you've become dull of hearing. You've become sluggish in hearing the deeper truths of the Word of God. Now notice the word become. This indicates that they've started the Christian walk at one place, but something has devolved. 
Their fervor, their interest in the Word of God has has slacked off. They've become sluggish and sleepy and dull of hearing. So the wake-up call continues in verse 12. By this time, you ought to be teachers. That's not saying they should be official teachers in the church as such. But you should have the capacity to teach others the truths of the Word of God, to exhort one another in these truths of Scripture. But you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. We, you need milk and not solid food. That is, you've even become dull to the basic truths you know. He's clearly challenging them, calling them to wake up. If you uh, use the illustration here, he's like he's in the passenger seat saying, put both hands on the wheel, pay attention to the road, let's get back to the basics. You even need some encouragement there. For everyone, he goes on, verse 13, who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. The word of righteousness I take to refer to ethical implications of a believer's union with Christ and a biblical worldview. Man at the men's breakfast yesterday, that's exactly what we were doing. right? Our union with Christ and the implications in the life of a man. That's what he's, he's speaking about here in verse 13. You are unskilled in the word of righteousness because you're not growing deeper. You're you're unskilled in discerning right and wrong and understanding the truths of Scripture because you're not giving yourself to the word to grow in it. You're happy with milk and you're stunted. Immature believers are now contrasted with mature believers. Verse 14, solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil... By by knowing the Word of God, they are growing in this capacity. They're spiritually maturing, grasping deeper and deeper doctrinal truths. I want to go with you there, he says, but I'm not so sure that you're ready for it. Are you listening? Are you awake? Now, he's not talking here about some nerdy Bible experts who debate theology as a hobby. That's not the picture that the Christian life is driving at. And I, I would say to us, maybe, maybe you hear this and say, the deeper truths of the Word of God, it just makes me weak in the knees. I look at others and I just don't seem to grab things like they do. Listen, do not grow discouraged by brainy people who can outread you and outthink you. They're not the people you should be responding to. Or concerned about. Keep reading the Bible. Stay awake during sermons. Strive to understand what is being taught. Make connections. And you say, I don't understand things. I don't catch things. I don't put them together. Consistency in the Word will continue to allow you to make the linkage. To grow and to understand in ways you can't understand. I've used the illustration often, but our... Our kids used to, when we were learning piano, that you'd put the sheet music up in front and they say, I can't do it. Well, how do you respond? Oh, yeah, this is kind of true. You can't. But you can. You see? Get at it. Keep trying. Keep putting it together. And before you know it, you can do something you couldn't do before. So it is with the Word of God. Not to aim at someone else who's 
so good at reading or theology or just impresses you with their knowledge of Scripture, but you read the Word of God, listen to sermons, actively pursue knowledge of God's truth. That's how he's waking them up here. Keep learning to distinguish what the Bible commends as right, what it denounces as wrong, and actively obey that, and you will have a good knowledge of God's truth. It's about obedience, ultimately. Not who can cross all their theological T's and dot their theological I's just right. It's how do you live? And how are you hearing the counsel of God and putting it into practice in your life? Spiritual infants, here's the point, they don't need superior IQ to grow in powers of discernment. Spiritual infants though, cannot remain spiritual infants, or they will die. Spiritual lethargy and malnutrition leads to apostasy. This is the warning. Therefore, 6-1, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, of faith toward God, of instructions about washings, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. He's not saying we should abandon the basic doctrines of faith listed here, or he'd be saying let's abandon Jesus. Clearly, it's not what he means by leave. What he means is that these, these foundational truths about Christ, we must move on They are foundational. You build the house on the foundation. You don't live on the foundation. You live in the house that's built upon it. These are absolutely essential truths, but let's move on. Praise God if He's taught you these things. Praise Him. The importance of repentance from sin. The folly of trusting our own works to save us. That salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Praise God if He's taught you truth about life in the local church. As in the initiatory rite of baptism. In biblical church order and practice. The laying on of hands. Praise God if He's taught you about the future resurrection and final judgment. You know that there is a resurrection. You know that there is a final judgment. And I can stand there complete in Christ. Praise God if you've learned these basic truths of the Christian life. But we must move deeper into God's truth and keep growing. There's a couple that visited our church years ago. They seemed to really appreciate us and enjoy the church and were thankful for it. But as time passed, they grew increasingly uneasy. And one day they met with me and said, we, we just... We, we don't understand, this isn't the words they use, but this is the summary of it. We don't understand why the preaching of the church is not evangelistic. I pressed that and asked what they meant by that. What they were looking at was that every sermon would be directed to the lost. Every sermon should be oriented to those who do not know Christ, and the rest of us should mostly be sitting there praying that they would respond. And I explained to them, I don't think that's the calling of the church, but rather to build believers up, equipping them in the Scriptures, growing us deeper and deeper in the Word of God, that we may go out of the doors of the church and reach the lost there as light 
Now, praise God for those who come in among us and hear the truth of God's Word in assembly. And we do want to proclaim the Gospel and call people to saving faith in the Gospel. But the church is a place where we grow deep in the Word of God that we might be deeper people and thus better witnesses, shine brighter in this world. And so he says to them, listen, you've got these things in line. This is beautiful. But you've got to go on. And this we will do, verse 3, if God permits. This we will do, I think, means going deeper in truth, anticipating 6.13 and following. So remember this. He's saying, you're too dull of hearing to really consider Melchizedek, but I'm going to get there in 6.13. He's just challenging them. He's not giving up on them. He's just challenging them. And he acknowledges here that if God permits, that is ultimately our spiritual growth as believers rests on God's sovereign provision and enablement, not on our ingenuity and effort, ultimately. But why is spiritual wakefulness so important? What is at stake? Verses 4 and following. For it is impossible... In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, it's impossible then if they have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Here's an illustration. The land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if that land bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Why is it so important to wake up and pursue spiritual growth in Christ. Because nothing less than our eternal judgment in hell is at stake. Spiritual lethargy leads to apostasy and judgment. That's why it's important. I, you probably caught that just in the way that I read it. But verse 4, you see the phrase, for it is impossible. Connect that down to verse 6. He kind of All that other stuff is there in between of what these individuals are, but it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. The big question here in verses 4 and following is, who is the them? Who's he talking about? These people that have been enlightened, but then (coughs) fall away and find it impossible to be restored. Who are they? Well, not many questions in the New Testament have elicited more serious debate among theologians. In fact, it led to some concerned discussion between Beth and me as we were getting ready here today. I said, Beth, I think in this sermon I'm going to land in a place where the majority don't. And that's never a happy spot to be. But this is a notoriously divisive passage. And it's not like, well, you got those people over here you just kind of look at sideways. They seem to be really influenced by the world's philosophy, and they all take this view. And those that are really solid in Scripture, they all take this view. It's not like that. 
You can find people from all different communions all over the place who land in all different places on who these people are. But getting to that point now, I should add one other thing. Um, The view that I'm going to share here today I thought was the most ridiculous view possible when I was in Bible college, and I would have argued anyone out of it at that point in my life. So uh, I may shift again. Uh, it, it, is, it is a challenging passage. I don't think so, but here we go. Who are these people? There are more views than I can describe here for us, and typically my approach is to give you my conclusions, to move on and say there's other views, check out those other views. But because there is, this is so divisive, I'm going to take more time than normal and lay out just some of the interpretive views. So we're talking about these people who have been enlightened, they've tasted the heavenly gift, they've shared in the Holy Spirit, they've tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. They fall away in apostasy, never to be reclaimed. Who are they? Well, some would say that what's in view here is really, they're Christians, but this is this, the only thing that they lose is rewards in heaven. That's all that is lost. You maybe have heard of this idea, uh, this position. The problem is verse 8. Well, there's a lot of problems with it, but the problem is verse 8. But if it, that is, if the land bears thorns and thistles, it, the land, is worthless and near to being cursed, and the land's end is to be burned. What is burned is not the bad works of the Christian so that the Christian loses reward in heaven. What is lost is the person. Further, Saying that all the warnings in Hebrews speak of a lost reward in heaven takes so many gymnastics to support, it becomes clear that the agenda is really coming from outside. And that, what is that agenda? It's a valid one. It's a concern that we not see salvation by works and that we not see sanctification by works. And that's a good agenda, but you don't need to get there by twisting text. Texts get twisted out of shape, and in the end, the effort is entirely unnecessary anyway, because salvation is by faith, and sanctification is by faith, not by works. Moving on, there is, are those who say that what is happening here is that these Christians are losing their salvation. So verses 4 and 5 address genuine believers Verses 6 and 8 indicate that a genuinely born-again, spirit-indwelt, heaven-bound believer in Christ can choose to abandon salvation. This interpretation reads the text honestly. In fact, this is the, the most supportive text in Scripture, I think, for the view that salvation can be lost. But I fear it does so naively. In anxious desire to defend the free will of man, this view runs into serious conflict with the New Testament teaching on salvation. And I know they're just proof texts at this point. There's so much more we could say. But just to remember, Jesus said, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will. Notice the emphasis on will here. Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. 
but raise it up on the last day. So the will is the will of the Sovereign Father who acts to give to the Son individuals. Verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. John 10, to those who did not believe, he didn't say, wow, I'm really bummed about that. I I hope you reconsider that. He said, you're not of my sheep. He's the shepherd the Father gives to the shepherd the sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me. Again, we see there the sovereign work of the Father is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. It doesn't say that they can't leap out of his hand on their own initiative. But that would be something that would have to be very much added to the sense of the passage. Romans 8, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, that is, that they too would rise from the dead, and those whom he predestined, he called. So whoever he's predestined, he calls. As they respond in faith, he justifies, and those that he justifies, he glorifies. There's no exception that's offered here. Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for the adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. To the praise of His glorious grace. And Philippians 1.6, I'm certain of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And we could go on for a long time. Now that is, the argument can be made, bringing text outside to this text. But how do we make the whole New Testament synchronize that is a legitimate concern? Third position would be hypothetical or a means of sanctification. I'm lumping together two groups that would be disappointed to be on the same line. But I'm putting them together here because these views argue that the judgment warned about never actually happens in the life of any believer. So they would say this is not the loss of salvation. It can certainly be read that way if all you read is this passage of Hebrews. But putting together the whole Bible, the whole New Testament... It's not talking about the loss of salvation, but it is a hypothetical. Should a believer be able to fall away, which they aren't, you could never restore them to repentance. Or the means of sanctification view, the warnings serve to keep every true believer on the road of faith. No believer is ever lost to apostasy, and biblical warnings are part of assuring us to that end. So it's like the biblical warnings are like someone in the passenger seat constantly saying, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake. And it works for absolutely every believer. Every single car reaches the top. The problem with these views is that they end up applying ultimately in one sense to no one. They're effective on some level 
but they actually, the warnings and the judgment never actually apply to anybody. As Philip Hughes put it, what is the point of warning believers against the danger of apostasy if no believer ever actually commits apostasy? Little by little over time, you start to realize that the warnings really don't accomplish anything because they don't apply to me as a believer. One author rightly observes that the more we get what the warnings are doing, that they keep us on the path but never actually come true, the less we take them to heart, thus defeating the counsel. It's almost like we're sleepy, the warnings wake us up, but over time they start to just drone on and on and on and we start to not listen and listen. Okay. That's a lot of teachy stuff. If you lost, if you're lost anywhere in here, we're coming back to the sermon now. All of that I'm saying out of deference to the fact that I'm probably speaking to the majority of people who hold one of those positions on some level and come back to what I believe where I'm at at this point in understanding this passage. And that is this, that what is in view here is false belief. The threat of judgment against those who commit apostasy is real, and it actually happens. When God elects one unto salvation and hands that person over to the Son who promises to justify, sanctify, and glorify that adopted child, no power of hell, no scheme of man, and no weakness of the believer can reverse the process of God's will. While the descriptors of verses 4 through 5 apply to all Christians, no one would question that, I suggest that they can also apply to those who profess salvation in Christ, even members of the church who end up renouncing Jesus. Now the major problem with this view is what? It's obvious. How do you say these things of an unbeliever? of someone in false belief. How can you say that they're enlightened, that they've tasted the heavenly gift, that they've shared in the Holy Spirit? That's not talking about an unbeliever. As Grant Osborne observes, these verses are about as beautiful a description of the Christian life as can be found anywhere in Scripture. And yes, as I've said, these phrases can certainly apply to believers. But on careful review, there is a sense in which they may apply to false believers. The context must determine. The context here actually raises some questions about the identity of the kind of people the author has in mind. Notice that the people are not described as born-again believers. They're not described as people baptized by the Holy Spirit or indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They're not described as those who are adopted by God or chosen by the will of God or the like. The terms are not typical descriptions of faith in the New Testament. So I cautiously offer that these are people very much like the soils in Jesus' parable. Remember in the parable of the soils, the plants grow up but die and are lost. It's not saying that you can have genuine spiritual life baptized in the Spirit and lose it. It's not that's pressing the analogy too far, but it's saying from every appearance, this is a true believer. Uh, no. No, it wasn't. 
because that person eventually renounces Christ. Now, the, uh, these people who walk in close communion with a Christian church, these are people who walk in close communion with a Christian church. They enjoy many of the benefits of the Christian faith, but they prove in the end that they are not genuine believers. We have this going on in various places in the New Testament. We see this kind of thing happening. So there's some support there outside of the text of Hebrews. For instance, in John 8, notice that Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. You say, well, that's saving faith. They, they, They believed. I mean, we're in the book of John here. Belief means you're a Christian. He said to them, if you abide my word, you're truly my disciples. And you see that abide in the word continue believing in the word you will prove to be my disciples and you will know the truth the truth will set you free they answered him we are the offspring of abraham have never been enslaved to anyone how is it that you say you will become free well the conversation goes on and jesus ends with this you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires to the jews who believed in him So clearly there's a nuance here to how they believe that we have to ask, is it genuine faith or is it not? In Acts 8, Simon Magnus, but when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed and being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. I think this is tasting the heavenly gift, seeing the miracles of Christ. He believes and he's baptized. When Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also so that anyone in whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. I don't think Peter is saying you're lost as such, but he's certainly using verbiage that's pointing that way. But again, this is one who has believed and baptized, but the jury's out on the basis of how he responds. Matthew 7, On the day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. They were seen by everyone around and even in their own self-deceived hearts as the followers of Christ who did the works of Christ. And they will stand before the throne and he will say, I don't know who you are. You're not my sheep. So there's some indicators in the New Testament, and may I add to this, Judas Iscariot, who I think we could say in a certain manner of understanding had been enlightened by truth, had tasted the heavenly gift as he saw the miracles of Christ, who shared in the Holy Spirit. That's a tough phrase to to apply to an unbeliever. But tasting the goodness of the word of God, the powers of the age to come. Again, just the unique phrasing 
leaves some question in the mind and may in fact connect to a person such as Judas Iscariot. A follower of Christ, a believer in Christ, one baptized in the name of Jesus, and one in hell today. Philip Hughes says, What he has reason to fear, that is the author, what the author has reason to fear is that some among them who have professed Christian faith, enjoyed Christian fellowship, and engaged in Christian witness may prove to be hypocrites and enemies of Christ, and by turning away from the light they have known, show that they do not belong to God's people at all. Not all are of the church who are in the church. Of such false believers, the Apostle John says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they, are, that they all are not of us. So what we would have then, if I'm steering us properly, and you are more than free to take a different view, uh, but if I'm steering us properly, what we have then is a highly nuanced view of salvation. The author is not omniscient. There are no halos over the heads of the true believers. And he knows that not all who say then, Lord, Lord, will be received into the kingdom of God on the last day. This is what concerns him. There are people who reap the benefits of Christian living, perhaps even believe Christian doctrine to be true. They live in what appears to be true fellowship with the church, but at some point in the future, growing sluggish spiritually, they renounce the faith, never to be recovered, and that sluggish spirituality is the early warning sign of this process. Wake up, sluggish Christian you are in danger unless you're growing. Verse 6, they fall away. To restore them again to repentance is impossible since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Many different views on what that means. I think it's simply saying it's as if Jesus gets pulled, in their mind, gets pulled down from heaven gets pulled out of the grave and put back on the cross. They join those who crucified Jesus. They mock Him. They speak against Him. They position themselves against His saving grace. And in that sense, they crucify Him again, holding Him up to contempt. He's on the cross with contempt, in their view. These people who once walked with the church. So when the car leaves the road and begins to plummet to earth, there's no recovery. That is, when those who know who Jesus is, who have benefited from life in the body of Christ, and then come to the place where they repudiate Christ, there's no other source of salvation out there. They blaspheme the Holy Spirit, and thus the apostate repudiates the only basis upon which repentance can be extended, says William Lane. And so in a manner of speaking, they put Christ back on the cross as an object of ridicule and shame. They join the mockers. They hold him up to contempt. They despise the Lord of glory. And that is a possibility with each of us.
So, should we give up on people who apostatize? Not necessarily, because we, again, are not omniscient. We don't know what God is doing. We don't know if this is a season in their life. But as that resistance to Christ and completely spurning Him and turning their back on Him continues, there's no more recovery for them than a car catapulting off the edge of a cliff. They've turned their back on the one that can save. What we can do is pray. What we can do is love. There may be no recovery. Now, verses 7 and 8, I think, nicely fit as an illustration of what of the view I've taken here. For the land that has drunk the rain and often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. This is basically just saying, by their fruits you will know them. As with Jesus' parable of the four soils, the individual's heart is pictured as the field, and the fruit or the lack thereof is the evidence of one's salvation. So believers who bear fruit, that is, believers who continue to grow in the faith, and honor God with their lives, they demonstrate that they belong to God. How you live matters. Obedience to Christ is utterly essential. It is the evidence that I'm walking with Him, persevering in the faith, continuing on in Him. But those who renounce Christ demonstrate that they are on a path to destruction. Their end is to be burned. And again, it's not just their works that are burned. It's they who are given over to destruction because they did not bear the fruits of genuine faith in Christ. Now this is heavy. This is heavy stuff on a lot of levels. But looking at it from the warning here, this is really heavy stuff. Nothing less is at stake than eternal judgment. But remember... The author cannot read hearts, so he warns especially those in the assembly who are spiritually sluggish and dull of hearing. He warns them against the dangers of hypocrisy, but notice where he turns next. He's been laying it on thick, but thirdly, with, by way of encouragement, genuine believers must continue to pursue and find assurance in spiritual fruit. So he says to them, Verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. We believe you're on the track of salvation. Hebrews need a wake-up call. Some were flirting with this disaster as they permit spiritual laziness to rule their lives. On the other hand, the author takes heart and encourages these readers with the solid evidence of genuine faith in their life. Here it is, verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. And you still do. There is evidence of fruit in their lives. They're the fertile field that is producing fruit. And so this fear is not as great as it might have seemed with respect to the author and the recipients. He believes they're on the road to salvation. 
He bases that on the fruit in their life. A final appeal in verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. This is what I'm driving at. I do believe you. I do believe your faith is real. I see evidences of it in your life. So let's carry on and press on the way of life and not leave it. Those of you who are sluggish, wake up. There's great danger there. Stay on the road, but you're staying on the road. He's encouraged. There's a prospect of confident assurance in eternity. Verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish. There's the opposite, but imitators positively of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And much of the book of Hebrews will be about those people. I'm confident you're among them. You are genuine believers who are finding, and I find assurance in your salvation by the spiritual fruit that you're producing in your life. So if you have gathered with us today and do not know Christ as your Savior, this is certainly some heavy stuff. But let me say to you, this strong call to hold on to the salvation that we have, to hold on to something so valuable, it reveals your need to get whatever it is that believers are holding on to. You can't hold on to something that's not in your possession. You can't stay on a road that you're not on. So all this talk of preserving something, you really should want it. Let me illustrate it this way. We said today, there's a gift for people. Anybody who goes back to the AP room, all the way back down that hall, there's a gift for you in there. You're like, eh, I don't, you know, whatever that is, I don't need it. And you notice a family of six, and they're taking the gift out of the building the father's running to get the car, and mom's steering the kids, and they're like all around this gift, protecting it, and they very gently put it into the car, and everybody, you can just see, I mean, they're treating it like as a newborn baby. You go, hmm, I wonder what that gift is. I'm a little more interested now. I mean, just looking at the way that they're treating it. I would hope that this sermon would serve to some degree, some way, that way in your life. The careful consideration of not abandoning the faith. If you don't have that gift of faith in Jesus Christ, it's valuable. Come to Him. Come to the salvation that He offers as a free gift. Come to Christ for the forgiveness of your sin and for the assurance of eternal life in Him. Repent and trust in Christ today. For the sluggish believers among us. Say, I know it. It's me. I'm sluggish. I'm dull of hearing. I'm not energized in my Christian life. I'm not, I, I'm not seeing a lot of fruit in my life. I think it's important that you recognize you're in an, a warm environment that loves you, but wake up. you got to wake up. Participation in the life of a local church is no guarantee that you are saved. You believe you know Christ, that's good. But if you are spiritually sluggish and dull of hearing, you should be deeply concerned because a day can come when you turn your back on the one who provides salvation for you. 
it's a call to action. We need to seek God's truth and his word on a daily basis. We need to seek him daily in prayer. We need to seek fellowship and accountability with godly people and be walking over the belly of our sins, stomping them down, as one has put it. Are you growing more alive in Christ or are you growing more sluggish and apathetic? What evidence of continuing growth could you cite? Do you know God's word more this year than last? And is it making a difference? Is Christ more precious to you today than he was last year at this time? Are you progressing? Are you growing? Are you bearing fruit? We need to come to terms with this call. If not, this passage of Scripture in this sermon today is a siren warning that you need to wake up. You need to turn from sin that destroys. Cling to Christ crucified and risen. Live your life in obedient faith. In response to God's word, commune with God in prayer, seeking to remain sensitive to the inner witness of the Spirit of God that you are his child. Let me say it this way, for those of us who know the Savior, our assurance is not, we we can really get off track here, our assurance is not based on us being good people. Our assurance is not based on us trusting in ourselves. It's based in three things. Repentant trust in the objective finished work of Christ. I trust in what Jesus did. Secondly, the fruit of a transformed life. This isn't isn't performance. But it's to say the preciousness of Christ to my heart changes my will. It directs me against sin. It guides me into righteousness. And thirdly, the subjective inner witness of the Holy Spirit. I can't put a finger on that. I can't prove to you how that works. But as as I prayed this morning and last night, thank you, God, for that inner witness. It's a precious gift that the Spirit of God ministers to our heart and says, you are mine. What grace. And as we come now to the supper, this is one way in which we proclaim our faith and our fidelity to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is one aspect of our perseverance in the faith to concentrate on the death of Jesus Christ in our behalf and the gift of salvation that is in his name. If rightly prepared to come to this table, we say here at this table, my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, with him I hear commune. And with his body, which I recognize in love, I commune as a follower of Christ, who has declared that truth in believer's baptism and who is bearing fruit. Maybe struggling with sin. Maybe tracking backwards until this moment. But in repentant faith comes and says, this 
is the meal where I commune with Christ and his people. May we come in that spirit.